Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott, and welcome back to yet another episode of Lip Service. I'm super excited today to bring you an episode with the Black Crows. Rich Robinson, Chris Robinson normally don't do a lot of interviews. Truth be told, one of my favorite bands of all time, one of the greatest live bands of all time, over 30 million records sold, one of the most rock and roll, rock and roll bands in the world, according to Melody Maker. And again, one of my very favorite bands, it's a coup. Uh, appreciate you guys tuning in. This is the third installment of our collaboration with Spin Magazine. So excited about the collaboration and lots of great shows coming up. I think we have Living Color coming up next Monday, Danny Clinch next Tuesday, and David Duchovny to follow. So quite a few guests coming up that are very exciting. Excited for alls to come. And again, I couldn't be more elated to have the Brothers Robinson on the show. These guys have been away from us for way too long. I want to say six, seven years. They announced the tour right before the pandemic. Actually got the pleasure of seeing them at the Troubadour on the first reunion show. And now they're back. You know, I think they're one of the first bands, first rock bands, actually, to, to uh, tour post-pandemic. So excited to have them here. Coming up in just a moment, Chris and Rich Robinson from the Black Crows. Hell yeah. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me fictional golf and western country music pioneer uncle drank the series also stars luke wilson brian kelly chelsea lynn kinky friedman and billy zane as a talking blender named blendy you can find the ballad of uncle drank on sirius xm pandora stitcher or wherever you get your podcast you're listening to lips la with scott lips our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots' tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. And more, more importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for a great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey guys, it's Scott Lips and welcome back to the show. Lip Service brought to you by Spin Magazine. Very rarely am I this excited about our guests, but I'm elated to have on the brothers today, Chris and Rich Robinson. How are you guys doing today? Good, good. Awesome, good, great man. to see you guys. Rich, Thank how you. you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Where are you guys? Where are you at, Rich? I'm in Nashville. Nice. Or Franklin, I guess, just outside. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk about the tour. I, I think actually the tour kicks off in Nashville, right? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So you're celebrating 30 years, one of the most iconic rock records ever 
Shake Your Money Maker, one of my favorite records. By the way, you guys are one of the best live bands ever and one of my favorite <laughs> bands. So I appreciate you being here. Um, <laughs> I think July 20th in Nashville is when the first, uh, uh, first show kicks off. And, and you're actually the first rock band that's uh, doing a tour post-pandemic. How do you guys feel about touring now with everything going on in the world? I mean, we're, you know, we're over the moon, you know, it's, I know it's been tough for everyone and, you know, and but especially, you know, like every single musician that we all know, no one could go to work, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I imagine, you know, if you, if, like, if you're a YouTuber or something, you could continue to work through that, but, <laughs> like, you know, other stuff, it's, um, but, you know, I've said it and I think it's, you know, it's worth mentioning that, you know, I think one of the only reasons like we didn't go absolutely crazy is everyone's in the same boat, you know, yeah. um, it changed the trajectory of everyone's lives. Um, the richest corporations in the world got way richer and all the family owned businesses went out of business. <laughs> but, but everyone had to deal everyone and it didn't make it easy and it didn't make the anxiety any less or whatever, but at least everyone was in the same boat. And, um, but, but we're unimaginable, our excitement ready to go. Definitely. Do you think you'll have like a new appreciation for touring in this sort of post pandemic world that we're in now? No, I mean, not for me. I mean, we've, I have a new appreciation for not touring because that was the first <laughs> year and a half since 1989 that we weren't doing it. I'm either as the crows are in our solo group. So yeah. Um, that's our, you know, that, that's, that's, that's just how we live. And, but 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 not doing it definitely makes it sweeter to get out to do it. Definitely. Rich, you missed before uh, you jumped on. I was telling Chris many years ago, I used to go to music school with Chuck Brandt, also known as Johnny Colt. All right. And, uh, we used to run around. We had a little band together. And, and we all went out one night. I think it was English Acid, uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, and got into some trouble. And so it's great to see you guys again. I mean, I don't expect you to remember that because it's probably 1989. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's how long that's how long my history goes oh, back. And he told that's amazing. I, yeah, I remember he told me he's like, you know, I just joined this band. You're going to love them. You have to come out with us tonight. You know, we'll have a great time. And they're, they're great guys. And, and I'm really excited about this project. So it's funny to see many years later celebrating 30 years of Shake Your Money Maker. And, you know, as I said, I'm super excited to be sitting with you guys. So during the lockdown, I heard you guys were working on some new music, right? With George, can you talk about uh, how that went and what you have coming up? Um, yeah, I mean, Chris and I always write, you know, just in general. It's what it's what we do. And it keeps me sane in a day, you know, to be able to write some songs. And, uh, you know, I have a studio here. And so to me, it was just, it was one of the things that kept everything going uh, during this time that we had to be able to send songs to Chris and have him send me stuff and back and forth. And, uh, you know, and also working with George again for the first time has been great. You know, it's been really cool. Yeah, I imagine like throughout the years, right, the last six or seven years, you had a lot of offers to get back together. And sort of why do you think this happened now for you guys? How did it come to be? I, I mean, I think Chris and I were ready. I mean, you know, you get away from the context. You know, when you're in a band, a, a, a successful band, uh, we toured for 11 solid years without doing anything else. And we never stopped. And then took a break and then toured some more and for five solid years without taking a break 
And so when it ended, we really had, or for me at least, I had eight solid years of, you know, doing my own thing, you know, putting together another band. I played with Bad Company to help, you know, Mick, um, Ralph, Scott Ill, and, and I filled in for him for a, a tour. And I did this Hendrix thing and scored a movie and produced a bunch. And so to get out of my, zone, my comfort zone, and then get into this, these other sort of scenarios and me being in my solo stuff and uh, other bands. I mean, I was more in the position of what Chris was, you know, and it was an eye opener and it really showed, I learned a tremendous amount and I learned about how, you know, personally, you know, the things I was bringing to the relationship that would annoy the shit out of him. You know, right. what I mean? Too. You know, it's never just a one way street. It's easy to say that guy's a dick or that guy's a dick, you know. But if you look at yourself and you understand and you grow up and you learn, you're like, wow, OK, yeah, I now I see. And so I think after all of that, for me personally, uh, you know, when this came up and we talked about it and I was ready. And I also, at the end of the day, missed my brother, you know? Um, Definitely. So ultimately that's why it all started for me at least. Yeah. And I want to say, um, I would imagine like the last seven years, every time you'd write songs through your writing process, you probably had Chris's voice in your head. Like what would this song sound like if Chris was singing it? So did you ever think to like reach out and be like, Hey, here's a new song I just wrote and Love to have you. Seen yeah, that. I mean, you know, that there, there was always that inclination. I've always written for Chris's voice. You know, even when I write solo stuff, I always hear Chris singing it, you know, for, yeah. you know. <laughs> so, yeah, there was definitely there was definitely that. Awesome. I was actually at the Troubadour show. It was a great show, by the way. So talk to me about the current lineup. I know Sven's back in the band. So uh, talk to me about the lineup <laughs> now and, and where that's yeah, at. I've, uh, we're super stoked to have Sven back. And um, I mean, he's been he's been a part of you know, even though he wasn't in the band early, early on, he's been, we've, you know, we've always been in the same, you know, you know, we were his, bubble. His, yeah. His high school band played with our high school band and, you know, that we all lived in the first band house together and there we got their record deal first. And, you know, we were all like, Oh fuck, you know, um, but he, we've been in each other's orbit since 1985 and, because um, right, he was actually the first bass player before Johnny, right? Uh, no, no, we had a, we had another another Atlanta guy who's not with us anymore named Scott Shamel. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Sven had a band called uh, Marry My Hope yeah. at the time. Right, 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 right. We were signed to Beggar's Banquet. Yeah. Uh, Rough Trade or whatever, and so we're super happy to have him. And you know, it was another bummer not just to be on the road, but we you know, put together this awesome band and, you know, we're super excited for people to, you know, like some people know Isaiah Mitchell from Earthless, a great, great rock and roll band, but we're super, you know, blessed to have Isaiah playing guitar. He's incredible talent. Um, and then we have Joel Robineau on keyboards, who is also has a band called Once in Future Band from Oakland. That's one of my favorite favorite bands in the world sure um and is another just uh i mean joel's uh, you know he's he's a uh he's a whole thing onto himself <laughs> i don't know if joel's in our band or we're in his band we're figuring <laughs> that's fine uh, and then we have brian griffin on drums and brian just joined the band 
so yeah, I mean, you know, we get to Nashville in a couple of weeks. We couldn't be more excited about like the group of people and, you know, everything's really, everything's really positive. You know what I mean? There's uh everyone's happy to be there. Everyone knows what the deal is. We're playing this, you know, the focus of this tour is shake your money maker. And, yeah. you know, we expend, we expended a lot of energy throughout the years trying to be expansive and, you know, pushing our, you know, all the influences coming in and different kinds of music, you know, not making the same record twice, taking our live shows. I mean, seeing where they could go, different cover tunes and playing rarities and, un, you know, release songs. So I think for us to take that same type of passion and energy and put it into a more focused presentation, i.e. Shake Your Moneymaker and the subsequent yeah. sort of singles and the most popular songs, it's just, it's just super cool. You know what I mean? Like, it's, we're not doing the same old thing. We've never done this. So for us, it's new. And, and I think that kind of dynamic is exciting for us you know what I mean oh wow you know like again you know we've been writing a lot of songs we definitely will make a new record but the focus really is to how much can we pour into this you know what I mean? and like make this special and and for me that's been like one of the coolest things you know because I, I mean except for the, the 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 time of making Shake Your Money Maker and getting to that tour cycle or whatever we never had that kind of focus in the same way now southern harmony because we knew that record was special you know? yeah well the truth is you guys never really played this record in its entirety from start to finish right and i feel like there's even there's songs like i think strut and blues and thick and thin i don't even know if you those are kind of deep cuts that you didn't play much either right yeah, strut and blues. yeah. Strut and blues we never played yeah, yeah until you know a couple till we did these warm-up shows um but then we played Strut and Blues and we were, we were like, why haven't we been playing Strut and Blues for right. years? It's <laughs> killer, you know? Yeah. Well, there's um, some great stuff on the box set. I mean, there's amazing covers. There's great tracks that I had heard before, but I hadn't heard all the stuff. So if you don't mind, I kind of like to walk back to the beginning, though, because the, the inception of the band is so interesting to me. And if we talk about the early days, there's even stuff from Mr. Crow's Garden on the box set. And I'd never heard some of those tunes. And so talk to me about like the inception of the band. I think you guys I know you guys grew up around music. Your dad was in folk music. I think he even had a couple top 40 hits, right? Yeah. 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 In the 50s, he had some like more like kind of Bobby Darren rock and roll kind of songs. Yeah. And then in 1960, I think 1960, he signed with ABC Paramount as a folk duo. So yeah, he changed gears as well from like this kind of rock and roll thing to a folk thing. So yeah, music has always been a huge part of our lives. What was your sort of first memories of music growing up? I mean, was it folk music or was it because I know later on it was like the dolls and, you know, obviously R.E.M. and all that stuff. But early on, what were the first memories you have of music? I mean, for me, it was dad playing old folk songs, you know, like Shady Grove and like all these kind of kind of folk standards in a way. But yeah. he would really make that. I was always really interested in the lyrics and the stories and dad could, was a really good singer and he had a really cool, you know, traditional picking style with his finger picking style. And being, besides that, I mean, you know, when our dad was a, he was a salesman, <clears throat> sales rep. So he was gone a lot, but when he would be home on the weekends, it would be like, my earliest memories are Sly and the Family Stone records, awesome. Crosby Stills, Nash and Young records, like Mad Dogs and Englishmen, 
stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And Rich, what about you? Because I know you got a guitar. I think you were in like junior high or something, right? When your dad finally gave you a guitar. Yeah. Uh, I remember like the earliest song I remember hearing was, uh, was Carry On that on, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Sure. Um, and I remember our big like console stereo that we had, you know, yeah. and I, and I remember Sly Stone and, uh, you know, listening to, and dad would always listen to that. I mean, you know, I'd probably, I was two and a half years younger than Chris. So when dad played those folk songs, I mean, I was probably in bed a lot of the time, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, you know, I got a guitar. I, I started picking up my dad's guitar when I was about 14 and just learning stuff off of like the TV, just, you know, songs I heard or whatever it was. Yeah. And then dad wasn't too thrilled with us playing his guitars. So he's like, all right, I'm going to buy you guys a guitar, put that one down and here, play this one. And, you know, I mean, he was always really supportive, but that's, that's what I, that's what I remember the most, you know, and I still have that guitar that he didn't want me to play. Because initially, Chris, you had a bass, right? And, and I think your cousin was on drums or something. Yeah, yeah. The very first sort of <clears throat> attempts, we, I mean, we wrote a couple of songs, kind of sounded like the cramps a little bit, kind of vibe. Yeah, cool. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was kind of playing bass, but then I would sit down and show our cousin the drum part, and then I'd run back to the bass, and then I was trying to sing, and then I was like, fuck it, I should just be the singer, you know? Right. Like, and musically, it was what, about 1985, right? So the climate was definitely like all the hair metal shit that was going on. And it wasn't obviously, you know, it wasn't what you guys were doing and what you guys started to get into. So. Yeah, we, you know, we weren't MTV kids, you know, like Quiet Riot and right. Twisted right. Sister. That music looked kind of, I mean, you know, I guess you could say Black Flag and the Circle Jerks were silly too. But yeah, yeah. we were punk <laughs> kids and, you know, we were into Echo and the Bunnyman and like, you know, I remember the day pornography came out, the Cure album. I like bought it, had to get it, and the replacements and REM and uh, just you know we were way more on that side of of the culture of rock and roll, and you know it was it also was pragmatic, you know, because it's like we didn't really you know, what are we going to go see fucking lover boy or some shit like that? We were going to like a little weird punk club. And, right. And then before that, my first concert experiences were all black music, you know, I yeah, saw yeah. time and vanity six lakeside SOS yeah. rich. And I went to see cameo, you know, like Prince was so big early Prince. And then, and then it's funny because the next, the next thing it's like, Oh, it's, but I think for us too, like X, a band like X and sure, a band like a gun, a gun Club, you can really hear the Gun Club in our music too. You know, yeah. we had a, those Mr. Crow's Garden days. We had a jangly thing, and then when we started, that was super '60s and REM-ish. And then we wanted to, when we wanted to get into a harder sound, it's it's kind of sounded more cow punk than anything mm -hmm. else. And yeah, lack of a better thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was all this, you know we wouldn't have got you know what i mean we wouldn't have gone to like a big concert at the omni or something we right, went right. to little weird clubs and and the hardcore scene was great because it was all ages it was always for all yeah. ages you know when did you get into like nick drake and johnny thunders and all that kind of stuff did that come later in life for you no i mean it's a you know 
we're into, but while the, all this is going on, we also listen to shit tons of Bob Dylan. And we let, like Rich said, there's these classic rock elements that we love too. And, um, and Nick Drake just came, you know, Nick Drake comes at the same time, Graham Parsons and Alex Chilton and Nick sure. Drake and Sid Barrett, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. But I'm, you know, you have to realize too, I'm obsessive um, record collector and just uh, music you know, person, like, you know what I mean? I'm always looking for something to, to listen, to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm searching, you know, I've been collecting records since I was about 12 years old, you know? Wow. So. By the way, you can never live where I live, Chris, because I live on the same street as Amoeba. It actually just reopened on my street. <laughs> so yeah. the new Amoeba opened up on my block. So now if I'm I like... lived on, if I lived on your street, I would just open my house as an Amoeba annex. <laughs> right. It's, it's literally on my block and i every time i leave my house i'm like there's fucking amoeba i better go in there for no, a couple hours just go buy records yeah everybody should be buying records for sure so well this is what well, this is i guess 85 86 was driving and crying happening at that point or not yet yeah they start around the same time you know i mean i'm not sure when the first driving and crying that that very first record but no, we love driving and crying, you know, I mean, for us too, but they're, you know, they took our drummer and they were kind of competition. So we would be kind of like, fuck them when we were kids. But I had great times at driving and crying shows and Kevin Kenny is a great songwriter. And, you know, the original driving crying was awesome, amazing shows. And, you know, that whole scene, like we were saying, driving and crying got signed to a major Mary, my hope got signed. We got signed. I mean, there was a lot of, and then bands in Athens, there was a lot of, um, you know, for a local music scene, there, there, were, there was a lot of national attention there in terms of record companies. And Definitely. So walk me through that process of, you know, meeting George and obviously from Mr. Crow's Garden to the heavier sound that you guys progressed to, which is obviously Shake Your Moneymaker. Because like I said, the folk element, when you listen to those early demos, from Mr. Crow's Garden, I actually never knew how folky the band was. I mean, compared to the, you know, the heavier sound. Yeah, I mean, I, in a way, She Talks to Angels is an offshoot of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, I think that's more actually a Mr. Crow's Garden-y type of song in a way. Um, I don't know if Rich agrees, but... Uh, yeah, Rich, do you agree? When you listen to She Talks to Angels, because I, I noticed that was actually on the demo stuff, I think, from Mr. Crow's Garden on the box set. Was that the first song that you wrote together that you're like, this is it for us? This is going to be, you know, the song that's going to take us... You know, no, <laughs> it wasn't not a million years. No, <laughs> okay. I mean, I was into the song. I thought it was really cool. And, you know, and. But it was the open E tuning, too, right? Yeah, yeah, it was open E tunings. There was a kid in Atlanta that actually showed me uh, that tuning. He was like, man, you should check this out because I was really getting into Nick Drake, a friend of ours uh, who worked at a record store, gave Chris um, time tree. of no reply. Yeah. Mm. Time and no, it was before the box set came out. Oh, right, so, right. yeah, so it was time and no reply. And I remember listening to Fly like a hundred times in a row, just like, <laughs> uh, and it just, it, and it was the demo version that Nick did. And it was something that really struck me instantly. Um, and so I was, I, I just wanted to jump into open tunings. And so I, you know, James, this kid, James Hall showed me open E and that's kind of how I got into it. Um, realizing later that I had always been drawn to it anyway with the, the Jimmy Page stuff, you know, uh, the and stills and all these different people. And the Keith stuff too, right? Keith Richards. Yeah, yeah, and Keith. Yeah. So in the, in the funny thing, just hearing you guys talk and 
we went we got into rock and roll backwards in a sense you know yeah. what i mean like right. we we were born into it and then we we went off on our own tangent you know we got into prince and you know funkadelic and sly stone and all these different things and then we went into like a uh you know our own alternative uh you know journey so to speak and it's um and then we got into you know, uh, and, and through that, you know, like punk rock, and then it, we kind of landed back into rock and roll music because rock and roll encompasses every bit of that. Definitely, Sly definitely. Stone is as rock and roll as Keith Richards. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like hundred yeah. percent, maybe more. I mean, and so is yeah, Joni Mitchell. Yeah, and, you know what I mean? And so yeah. is Dylan, and so are all of these people. Yeah, and and so you know, for us, ultimately, that's what. Uh, you know, to to sort of land on this springboard. <laughs> sorry, it's a lot of chaos over here. To land on this springboard of rock and roll music as Chris and I's, uh, you know, platform of expression, so to speak. You know, um, I don't know. It's just it's amazing to me. I mean, it is you know, it is funny because George. You know, I remember you know George sitting me down and at where I was living in, and he was like. He played me Miss Judy's Farm by the Faces. And right, right. it's like, <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And how raw and stuff. And like, you know, at that time, 1971, like was like, a, there was nothing cool except Can or, you know, like right. or David Bowie or, yeah. or whatever. I don't know. Maybe the first Dolls record is 71, 72. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know what I mean? So Stooges or whatever, right? So like this, that era of rock and then especially Humble Pie and Free, yeah. and Terry Reed and even Zeppelin to some extent had yet to like come full circle to where it's universally cool, you know, Definitely. by like, yeah you know, all sorts of people. So like, you know, dude, it's same thing like wearing bell bottoms. People were like laughing at us. I was like, y'all laugh all you want, man. We look rad. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and you know what I'm saying? So it was kind of in a way as punk as fuck to like adopt that at the time. Like, you know what I mean? It was Definitely. against everything, anyone mid tempo things, you know, like even like, a, even on our, you know, I look at Shake Your Money Maker. We do an Otis Redding song. No rock bands were doing that. I mean, it's also our influence of black music in, that other rock bands didn't have at, at the surface as much as we. Right, were. right. Um, even though we, you know, the drummer wasn't capable of swinging, we were a rock band. But you hear a lot of that influence, you know, hopefully in the most respectful and best way. But, Definitely. So you guys are all living together. I guess what it is, eighty six. Mr. Crow's Garden. You were seven. Yeah, I mean, Rich. Rich was still at home. <laughs> and how was that? What was that household like with all you guys living together back then? The band house was disgusting, really, but <laughs> amazing. You know what I mean? It was our first taste of freedom. You know what I mean? It was like um, wildness and. You know, I was crazy, you know, free. Uh, I mean, I literally was probably a little crazy. I think some people maybe were a bit worried about me. But, <laughs> you know, we'd have these wild drunken nights and I'm like, the next morning I would make everyone go to Oakland Cemetery and write poems for an hour. And then at <laughs> night we'd go under the streetlight and read them as loud as we could. You know, all this weird, <laughs> weird stuff, you know, but it was also intensely uh important to the commitment of the life of that you know what i mean like in my mind i was like here i am 
I just turned 21 years old and I haven't made like an important piece of art yet. So I, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. have to work really hard, have to um, be special, you know what I mean? And then rock and roll, as you know, and remember the culture was so different. Rock and roll was important. Not only was it billion dollar industry, the record business, it was important. People listened to artists, what you wore and the music you listened to said a lot about who you were in, in society and in the culture, you know, and that you weren't a part of this and you were deeply a part of this, that, you know what I mean? The outsider element of it, all of it, it was, it was an entirely different planet. Definitely. And how did you guys end up meeting George? Because obviously it was a long, I think he actually loved your covers first, right? And it was sort of a long drawn out process because by the time you met him to when you got your deal, I, I feel like he kept like trying to push you along, but he was obviously, he was taking his time with the whole process, right? We had met, we were dealing, uh, actually the same guy that turned me on to Nick Drake, kind of quote unquote managed us. Okay. And he got us into a studio to do some demos. He sent the demos out to A&M. And was this, probably was this Aaron Jacobus? Yeah, Aaron Jacobus. So he sure, mailed okay. them out to everyone. He mailed them to Aaron in particular. Yeah. And Aaron, you know, was cool. I mean, he, you know, sent us to do multiple demos, you know. So we did do two demos, two or three demo sessions in Raleigh, kind of outside of Raleigh, North Carolina with this guy, Steve Gronbach. Mm. And, and it was cool. And for us, you know, it was like taking forever. You know, I was like 15. <laughs> And Chris was 17 and we're like, well, this is, why, why is it taking so long to put out a record? You know, uh, why can't A&M just sign us? And so, oh, maybe you know, we're very good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, a couple of years later or a year later, I'm not great with year timelines, but, uh, you know, we were playing in New York and it was actually, um, on a little, a short run that we did. I think it was New York, Boston and something else, or maybe it was just New York, but we played a show and George was there and he had heard discussion of us at some meeting at A&M and he wanted to come check it out. And that's and, where we first met him. He had, he had flown to Atlanta. George had been his, George wanted a rock and roll band. That's what he was looking for, for his mm. first signing and stuff. And I, he, I, th I think he had been in Atlanta and we, you know, we, we, we didn't have a lot of gigs, but someone at a coffee shop or at the pizza place or something said, oh, Mr. Crow's Garden's a rock band. They're like a rock and roll band. <laughs> and that's, I think, where he heard the name of the band. And then, like Rich said, we played this place called Drums in New York and we were like a third on a bill of six or something. And he came backstage and introduced himself and we played uh, down in the street by the Stooges and no more, no more by Aerosmith in our set, you know, with our originals. Yeah. And he was really into it and he saw something and we exchanged numbers, started sending him some demos, started working on some. I mean, like Rich said to us, it was like fucking like sitting through Lawrence of Arabia, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. A movie that will never stop. And, it was only really 18 months or something, but, but George, you know, he kept, you know, he was the one and he, and to this day, you know, he instilled a work ethic that's important and he instilled, you know, without, you know, I think we always knew the songwriting was ultimately the most important, but George made sure we, you know, really worked hard, you know, I mean, 
we talk a lot about, you know, the first kind of, it wasn't she talks to angels as much as, and I don't think we ever thought of a song. It's like, oh, this is going to be a big single or whatever. But Jealous Again is a, a big song for us because, you know, Rich has now, you know, found his way to Open G. We kind of, you know, we want this rootsy band. We love the Stones faces, ACDC, you know, like this guitar. We want this thing with this kind of bluesy sound. And then Rich comes up we come up with jealous again, but you know, it jealous again takes a while too. George is like, okay, cool. You know, we recorded on our little condensed mic fucking thing and then send it to him in New York, you know, cause he's coming down every few months or whatever. Yeah, yeah. He's like, that's pretty good, but not good enough. Get in there again. <laughs> Until finally we come up with the song and we look around me, Rich and George, and we're like, wow, you know, now, you know what, now that we know that we can climb this, peak or whatever, <laughs> whatever <laughs> not fall off or die of lack of oxygen that sets the template boom there's twice as hard there's you know what i mean then all the other songs start to fall into place pretty quickly um but with a lot of work and a lot of focus and a, and a lot of trust you know what i mean because i think we would be very sensitive about someone who wanted to turn us into something we weren't you know yeah i think the advance was something like um five thousand dollars for that record right i mean i don't even know if that's an advance or more like that's something you borrow from your parents <laughs> right. Okay. I, I, right i mean by the way if your parents were my parents they wouldn't have given you five thousand <laughs> right so you, needless to say, your parents were supportive or not supportive of the career choices you made. They were supportive. I they mean, were, you know, they were worried, but they were supportive. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I wanted to ask you too about one of my favorite bands of all time, who you guys actually took on the road years ago, is Jellyfish. And I know there was like a side project many years ago you guys worked on. Is that ever going to see the light of day? I, I know it was like something. Oh yeah, Jimmy I did. The, the, we did some this thing called Sweet Pickle Salad. Exactly. Uh, I'd have to find Jim Mitchell and find the, find the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the tapes. I haven't thought about that in a long time. I mean, they, yeah, jellyfish were, I mean, I, I haven't seen him in a while, but Roger Manning's still a great friend. And yeah. Yeah. Back in the early, early two thousands, even, uh, Andy's worked on a couple songs with us and back in the nineties, there was even talk maybe of Andy being the second drummer, all sorts of crazy Man. stuff, but. That sounded Fantastic like the band. ultimate band to me. You guys together was like the ultimate band. So that sounded incredible. <laughs> <laughs> they were a great band, man. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a shame they only made those two records, but they were great records. Definitely. definitely. So jumping ahead to like 1994 now, do you think if Amorica came out now in that album cover, what do you think the public's reaction would be? We live in such a weird, sensitive time now. I don't know. I think it would be less. Uh, yeah, people I think care less. Less. people don't yeah. care. Yeah, they don't care anymore. It's essentially because at the time it was so controversial, right? But now looking back on it, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on. I mean, at the think. time, marijuana was illegal everywhere too. <laughs> right, you know that's what I mean? like, that is true. <laughs> a lot of shit has changed. You know. <laughs> right. I mean, I think it, you know. Again, it's. I don't think it's like the spine. <clears throat> it's not like Spinal Tap, where it's like, oh, he's being, she's being sexist, so it's yeah, fine. Yeah. I don't. The image wasn't is not to be taken literally, you know what definitely, I mean. Image definitely. is more about the gratuitive nature of American culture, no about uh, you know the shallowness of of the of things. Uh, you know the the cover uh, the the music is uh, that record is supposed to be deep, and there's a lot of dark themes. 
but the cover is supposed to be a juxtaposition of that and almost humorous. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's more making fun of, of America as this sort of bloated, you know, underneath it all, we can't deal with our own desires and, and sensual behavior because of this, you know, deep, deep Puritan streak that runs through us that everything's sinful and bad, you know? Yeah, true. Do you ever see a time period where maybe, you know, Mark Ford comes in for a gig, or you bring some of the other guys back just for one night? Do you have Hold some on, amazing Rich, players? Rich, ready? One, two, three. No. No. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's something you guys... All are... the best to Mark Ford. <laughs> I got, you know what I mean? But no, we've, we've moved on. All right. Well, well, let's talk about the 30th anniversary, obviously. Shake Your Money Maker, the box set. There's some amazing songs on the record. And I want to talk about sort of some of the, the covers on the record and some of the tracks that you feel like, you know, you hadn't, Rich, when you go back through the vaults, what are the songs that you were like, wow, that's great. You know, I, I wish I would have heard that earlier. Um, you know, I, I mean, to me, like Charming Mess, I'd totally forgotten about. And then to get it and listen to it, I'm like, damn, that's a pretty good song. You know, like I was pretty <laughs> happy with it. Um, good chorus. It totally spaced on, I did, I, I, you know, I, I knew that we had done 30 Days in the Hole at some point, but I did not know we did it on Shake Your Money Maker. I kind of thought it was a little bit later. Um, and Jealous Guy, too. I mean, to hear all that stuff for the first time in years, in decades, I mean, it's pretty far out, you know, to listen to that. And it, I mean, it's amazing, you know. And, and waiting, um, waiting Guilty, yeah. of course, right? Yeah, but waiting guilty, we had played and it was released as a B side somewhere. Mm. And we played. And so it that was that that song was still kind of in our purview. You know? Yeah, it would pop in our set rotation sometimes. And obviously, jealous guy. Talk about like some of the covers. Jealous guy, get back. Thirty days in the hole. Just how those all came about back in the day. I mean, I mean, for me personally, at that age, it's far easier to sing hard to handle than thirty days in the hole. I mean, Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> I mean, Steve Marriott still like, you know, we heard uh, Are You Ready the other day on the radio or whatever from, you know, rocking the Fillmore. And I was like, with my wife, I was like, fuck, man, listen to that, dude. I mean, yeah. it still is just so powerful, so soulful, so at ease in that range and that power that most vocalists, you know, you know, they're going to lay down after a show. He's like, let's do another one, you know? <laughs> like, um, but that was, you know, that was in our, we loved the, you know, like we loved humble pie, you know, yeah. and I, we loved that song. Imagine we've maybe played it every once in a while in a show, but like, we love the Beatles. I love, we love John Lennon. We love the Beatles and we are the, you know, the faces do jealous guys. So we were like, Oh, let's, you know, we can't sound like the Beatles. Not that we sounded exactly like the faces, but Oh wow, this fits what we want to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? This fits the presentation of the other songs, you know, cause we're not in a place yet to have the type of finesse and musicianship and dynamic to like, you know what I'm saying? Like this is day one stuff. You know, Definitely. that's the first time, you know, I'm standing in front of a real microphone trying to sing. That's the first time, you know, where Rich is working hard with George on that, you know, guitar sound. You know, Rich doesn't have a sound yet. That's his first time you hear Rich on a record. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and later he would have a sound that's very identifiable with Rich, you know. So when 
all these things are the very first time, you know what I mean? They take on just a different, I wouldn't say there's like a level of importance, but there's just, it's just different. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, now I would take it for granted at anyone that works with me that I know how to stand in front of a microphone and deliver a vocal. You know, right. at that time I wasn't even very, you know, compared to day one and, and 30 years later, I'm a much better singer, you know, no question. Um, but we had, we really tried, we had one thing and that was a lot of energy and spirit. And, you know, like I, I said it before, we played Jealous Again probably the first day, we probably played it six or seven times. And then three days later, we probably played it five or six times. And then maybe one more time, we played it four or five times. You know what I mean? Like that, that we don't do that anymore either, really, because- yeah. And we just did the lights on, the red lights on, go. <laughs> you know, like, you know, this isn't Pro Tools. No one can fix anything. You have to get the best take of the best, you know, you get the best performance of the best song that you can do. I was going to say, when you go back and listen to this record, there's a great story about thick and thin about even the car crash. So talk to me about that story, because I love that story. Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> It's funny too because that's in the studio like we're in there from you know one in the afternoon to four in the morning <laughs> you know, trying to get it done that's how it used to be uh and we were you know it was near the end of the session we were goofing around and we were doing it really to play a trick on the engineer right. and so we were like oh we want to record rich playing guitar outdoors you know like led zeppelin or whatever yeah and, so we threw, put all these bottles and stuff in a, in an empty, empty dumpster. And Steve, our drummer had this beat up old piece of shit, Dodge dart. And he used to crash it into stuff all the time. Anyway, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and so we had him bring out the mics and rich had a guitar. Like, let's get some levels, you know? And then like, we said, okay, you ready to record? And he put the car in gear and smashed into the dumpster. And like that's, and then we all were laughing because he thinks he's going to hear an acoustic guitar track and it's these asshole kids crashing a car into the dumpster in the parking lot of the studio. So that was like the big joke. And then we were like, oh, put it in front of the song. You know, it's great. It's also pre-sampling when you couldn't just sample it from a record, right? It was like, let's do this the right way. So, <laughs> yeah. so, um, so it's a 37 day record, you know. Yeah, totally. It's a, it's a 37 day kicking off July 20th. Dirty Honey's going out with you guys. How'd you guys find them? Uh, our well, we our manager the same- manages them. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, because they're definitely heavily influenced by you guys for sure. Yeah, yeah. They're cool, man. Yeah, they're yeah. We're def- super excited to have them, and they're doing really we're super. It's exciting for rock music to have a young band that people are noticing and. Um, I just think it makes the whole package exact more exciting, you know, to have them out there. You know, I don't know the other dudes in the band. I know Mark, the singer, who's very good, very good, powerful vocalist. And um, yeah, we're just super stoked to have them out with us. That's awesome. Do you ever see a day maybe when you do like a Southern Harmony tour one day? Yeah, maybe that would be rad. I mean, you know, like I think a lot of people would like to see that as much as they'd like to see this. Yeah, definitely. I would definitely like to see that for sure. So August 19th at the Forum in L.A. I hope to see you guys. Jones Beach, September 17th, a 37-day run. 
hey man, it was awesome seeing you guys. I mean, it's been 30 years since I've seen you guys together, like hanging out with you guys. So it was Dude, you're I not, by it. the way, you're not supposed to remember a night out at a club called English Acid. Right? <laughs> well, I remember because it was with you guys and we had a good time and it was like something <laughs> that stayed in my memory forever. So I'll never cool, forget cool. it. Um, but I appreciate you guys coming on. Check out the tour, check out the box set. Definitely go buy your tickets and 100% I'll see you at one of these shows coming up. Sounds right, good. Thanks yeah, so appreciate much. it, guys. All right. Appreciate it. Well. Have a good you. one. You too. Bye. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. There you have it, folks. Chris and Rich Robinson from the Black Crows. Thanks for tuning in. That was another great episode. Great to hang with those guys. As I said, I met them many, many years ago. So that was awesome. Looking forward to their tour and glad that life is getting back to normal as we know it. Hopefully I'll get to catch those guys in New York or in LA. I'm headed to New York tomorrow. Got a bunch of interviews set up there soon. Thank you for tuning in. Tell a friend, tell 10 friends if you like the show. And as always, much love, take care, rock and roll, and see you soon. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.